You're listening to the Steve's Outdoor Adventures podcast, where we talk about hunting, politics, sports, and everything in between. Now, here's your host, Steve West. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Steve's Outdoor Adventures podcast. You know, we've got an exciting new guest this week. His name's Ron Spomer. Uh, Ron's been working as an outdoor writer, TV show host, blogger, photographer, videographer. He's done just about every job in the outdoor industry over the last 45 years. He's had a great long career in the industry. He's really knowledgeable on guns and ammunition, ballistics, and hunting. Um, I'm looking forward to having him on the show today, and uh, we'll we'll have him call in here just shortly. Uh, But, uh, you know, this is like, it's a new year, right? Like, we're, we're now in January 2022. Everybody's glad to get out of 21. Yeah. I mean, we shot out of 2021, like we came out of a cannon. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I, I just hope that, uh, you know, 2022 is off to a great start. Hopefully for most people, um, you know, I think if people focus on the positives and not the negatives, like it's, it's easy to just boohoo and get caught up in the yeah. past, you know, a couple of Are years. Are we going to have another 2020 and 2021? Yeah, yeah. Screw that. man. We got to move forward. Yeah. Let's yeah. put our eyes forward. Let's think positive. Let's think about all the good things we could be doing ignore people who are negative that includes your congressman <laughs> yeah and surround yourself with people that are positive right totally that are taking you where you want to go exactly because yeah. then you will get where you want to go but if you're if you get caught up in the negative you're just gonna you know repeat the past yep. over and over again so once again look forward think positive and everybody uh, enjoy this this new year that's upon us you know speaking of new year's a lot of new things right so the canadian border opened up late last year yep in I'm, August. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. The timing was awesome for all those sheep hunting outfitters up in the north, right? Yep. It's like your Ready, season's half go. over. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, this year, I'm really excited because it sounds like we're going to be able to get all of our spring bear hunters out. These people yep. waited two years. There was no hunting in 2020, no hunting in 2021. There will be some big-ass bears running around up there. Yep. And some people booked, you know, in 2019 or even earlier, right? So they've been waiting even longer. So yeah. chomping at the bit is an understatement. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of bears setting the ground this year in, yep. a lot, you know, Alberta, Saskatchewan, British Columbia. I mean, and because of that, bigger bears, right? Well, More mature, just a, they're two or three years older. I think we're going to have our best season ever this year and with the carryover, it could last a few years. Now. I agree. Yeah. So yeah. exciting times there. I know you and I were talking about the Wyoming draw earlier on yep. the Wyoming elk applications are, you know, coming up due very yep. quickly. Deadlines due in whatever, 10 days or so. And so yeah. we're knee deep and getting ready for the draw and um, crossing our fingers that we get everybody drawn. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can honestly say that that, you know, the application process year after year, um, I'm glad that you guys are doing that now at the office and not me because I remember back in the day sitting there just crushing it for like four or five days by myself and and it was miserable. You know, Wyoming, yeah. Montana, Colorado, you know, all of mm-hmm. these states, Wyoming general licenses, all I mean, license paperwork is not easy and it's something that we do for all of our clients that book their hunts with Steve's Outdoor Adventures, but that's like the behind the scenes. Everybody thinks, Oh, it's Steve and Travis, they just go hunting. You know, yeah. this hunt three hundred and sixty five days a year. Now nah, we hunt. 30, 40 days a year and we yeah. do paperwork the other 300. Yeah, so. for sure. And I really like how Wyoming runs it because it's a segregated time frame that nothing else is going on for draws or preference points. So you can really focus on one species, one area. So, um, and then it gets crazier as the year goes, of course, but right now it's manageable because it's one state, one species and makes it a little easier. It would be better though. I remember when the draw results used to come out around February, February 20th. 22nd. Yeah. yeah. Now when are they coming out? Like, like May? June. Yeah. May or June. Oh my God. Yeah. Making us wait that long. 
it really affects people's ability to say, oh, I'm going to apply for Wyoming, and if I draw, great. If I don't, I'll apply for something else yep. because the draw results came out before yep. the Montana deadlines and stuff like that. And now it's with the other states and so forth, so it makes it a little more challenging for sure. I think I know why they do that, though, um, because if you – when they take in all of those applications, they're saying, okay, we're going to let this many people draw tags and we're going to make our tag allocation before we come out of winter. Late February is too early to know what weather mother nature is going to do. Yep. You get those February, March, April snows that can have a big negative impact on your elk population. And that can, uh, that can cause the game departments want to adjust the number of tags being allocated yep. in a particular area or zone. Right now. Yeah. Like you said, they have more time. You know, they get to, let's say, April, May, and they say, oh, well, we had a massive winter kill over in this, you know, this unit or these units. We need to reduce our tag numbers in those areas. It can also work the other way. You know, their post-winter uh, flyover surveys, when they're out there doing aerial surveys of the population, they might say, hey, we've got a lot more elk out here than we did last year, two years, three years ago. Let's increase those tag numbers so more people draw tags that year. So it can go both ways, and by allowing them until, let's say, the end of May, first part of June, to release those draw results, that gives them time to amend their tag alloc- you know, numbers that are being allocated year after year. Yep, for sure. So another thing that's going on right now is our lion hunters have had awesome success so far. You know, this winter more than any that I've been working here at Steve's Outdoor Adventures had a lot of snow, a lot of great conditions. Even early, we've gotten several lion hunters out, and they've all taken really nice toms. So that end of December through the first say ten days of January is pretty dynamite. I yep. mean, the guys were putting them down for sure. Yeah, yep. No, it's exciting, and and with this much winter left, I have to think we're going to get through all or most of our on call hunters. Yeah. Yep, for yeah. sure. And maybe even coming up here in the next couple of days. So. Yeah. Now, right now, while we're here doing this podcast and we're recording this, uh, clear down Las Vegas, there's multiple events going on. Yep. You've got uh, primarily at the shot moment, show, you've got shot show yep. handling, right? So uh, Bergara launched the new uh, carbon cure barreled guns, yep. the divide, the MG light and the um, Canyon. Uh, super excited. I, I literally today uh, got our, Adventure Armory dealer packet with all of the new gun packages and pricing and stuff so we could place our order. Um, we dropped a massive order for these new carbon-barreled guns. They're extremely accurate. They're great. Now, do I think that the uh, Premier Series Highlander and the Mountain 2.0 and those guns are you know obsolete now? Absolutely not. They're absolutely not obsolete. These guns are all awesome accurate. Mm-hmm. Carbon fiber barrels are a personal choice, right? This is And their carbon cure technology is next level. But it gives Bergara that series of guns now to appeal to the guys who want a carbon-barreled gun, and they have the long-standing series of the regular steel-barreled guns. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really excited about the new lineup of rifles that are you know hitting the market with Bergara this year because, man, I, already I've got like two dozen emails in the last three or four days yep. you know, ever since the King aired. Yep. Everybody wants to see that, mm-hmm. right? And this week, your deer episode's airing. Yep. Same rifle, yep. right? Um, that was the divide, yep. and everybody wants it. Super accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I mean, just like the steel barrel gun, super accurate, just a little bit lighter, yep. um, different stocks, different mm-hmm. looks, different feels, exciting times, exciting times. For sure. So, um, but, uh, but no, like I said, I can hardly wait to get Ron on the show because, you know, we're talking guns now, and that's his wheelhouse. We're Lots gonna, of experience. Yeah, I mean, what did you say forty five years? Forty five years in the outdoor industry, um, but primarily, like I, I watched his uh, YouTube channel for yeah. years. You know, Ron Spomer Outdoors, 
And he's a gun guy. Like he likes to compare calibers and uh, have compelling discussion of, you know, what's the difference between a 270 and a 270 short mag or, yep. you know, it's 7mm or 7mm Remington Magnum uh, or the 7mm Remington Ultra Magnum or the 28 nozzle. You know, what what do you gain from going one to the well, other? Yeah, yeah. You know, what are your pros and cons? And I think he's just a wealth of knowledge and statistics and ballistics and, and everything else. And, you know, and, and you know, one of the things we'll talk about today is like personal preferences, right? Like mm-hmm. what does he prefer? What do you like? What yeah. do I like? You know, or why when we, too, for if you're hunting, what, for what species, that's always a completely, big one. Completely, yeah. completely. But just the ability to have that discussion openly and, and talk about like, you know, look, we, I'm going to bring up the six, five Creedmoor later. Yeah. I mean, you get guys out there like Corey Knowlton. He hates the six, five Creedmoor. Yep. And it's not that he hates the six, five Creedmoor just because that's what it is. He hates the fact that there's a six, five Creedmoor and there's people who think they should go grizzly bear hunting with it. Yeah. It's like, Oh, but I've got a six, five Creedmoor. I, I might be president of the United States someday. No, <laughs> it's, it's a tool for a particular job. Use it within its, you know, capabilities yeah. Yeah. or what it's meant for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So every rifle and caliber has its limitations or the things it could be used for. The Creedmoor is not a moose gun. Correct. <laughs> or agreed, I should say. So we'll tell you what, we're going to take a short commercial break. Uh, you know, we have to, uh, to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back from this, uh, this short break, we're going to get Ron Spomer on the phone and we're going to start talking about guns, hunting, ammunition, Camo, yeah. uh, ballistics, the works. It's going to be a great show today. And we'll be right back with the Steve's Outdoor Adventures podcast. This segment of the Steve's Outdoor Adventures podcast is sponsored by Burris Optics. Find what matters. Hey everybody, we're back here in the studio uh, recording the Steve's Outdoor Adventures podcast. And on the phone, we have Ron Spomer. Ron, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Steve. I am glad to be here. Awesome. You know, I've been a longtime fan of your uh, YouTube channel. I, I I like to watch and listen and read compelling information about like caliber comparisons and bullets and things of that nature. So first and foremost, I want to thank you for making a lot of information available to people out there who otherwise would have no idea what what to make of the difference between a BB gun and a 300 Win Mag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Steve. I'm not sure they're la- that clueless, but yeah, it never hurts to pick up a, a few more details on this stuff because it gets pretty confusing. There's so many different cartridges and bullets out there. Yeah. I mean, what got you, you know, started doing the the video like caliber and cartridge comparisons? I mean, what, what, what made you choose that? I mean, cause that seems to be like your number one topic on the YouTube channel. Yeah, you know, I don't really even understand how or why it got started. Of course, I've been a rifle editor at Sporting Classics Magazine for a long, long time. And I've always been interested in this stuff. And the more I did it and wrote about it in different magazines, the more attention that seemed to get. And it just struck me that folks are really hungry for this information. So I started off doing a few YouTube things years ago about hunting, hunting tactics and the usual stuff. But I just noticed I got more response when I wrote about all these confusing ballistics topics. So I just tried a few more and a few more and they seemed to really catch on. So I thought, well, we might as well put out what folks are interested in rather than boring them with another deer hunt. Yeah. Feed them what they're hungry for. I mean, the, the number one program that we did last year per the, uh, you know, both network ratings and, uh, our, um, like calls in and email, logs and whatnot from an episode airing on the sportsman channel was a, a program where I shot gel blocks. I took a six, five Creedmoor and I shot gel blocks 
with high speed video to show people the differences between like a Burger VLD bullet and a Swift uh, Scirocco right. two and a Barnes LRX and a ballistic tip, and tried mm-hmm. to explain the different properties because all of these bullets. I'm when I was growing up it was like I'm gonna go get some 130 grain to hunt deer and I'm gonna get some 175 grain to hunt elk. It wasn't right. Hey, I'm gonna use this bullet or that bullet. It was just uh, it's the, all the 130s are the same, right? You know and Right. Yeah. Now it's like, you know, now I know they're all made differently. Some of them have interlocks and some of them have bonding processes and, you know, some of them are just all copper and, you know, and so it was amazing to me how hungry the viewers and network television were for this information. It really opened my eyes and I've got some plans to expand on that this year. So, um, I mean, what, what uh, bullet technologies, I mean, over the last 45 years of being in the industry, You've probably seen those come a long ways. Oh boy, sure have. Like you say, there was just pretty much all cup and core. And back in the seventies, we had the uh, nozzle partition bullet was really the first premium bullet that came along. And that's of course a mechanically locked in bullet with the shank locked behind a wall inside the bullet. And that never got a lot of attention for a long time because most of the ammo manufacturers were using their own bullets. They weren't loading up independent makers like that. And Nosler was building bullets, but they weren't building ammunition. So it just really didn't take off except for the hand loaders. Yeah. And that's where I got to know it um, in the late 60s, early 70s. Then there was a bitterroot bullet, which was well known as a bonded bullet, but nobody really understood what the heck it was. Well, Bill Steiger kept it pretty close to the vest. So it was a secret recipe, but serious elk hunters and moose hunters really liked that bullet because it stayed in one piece. And it gradually started to catch on. And I gosh, I don't remember when the dam broke, but I believe it was federal ammunition that started loading some partitions. And that's, I kind of cut it loose. People then started to realize that they did have options other than the ballistic or the silver tip. Before the ballistic tips came out, Winchester had their silver tip bullet, which some people thought was really pretty fancy stuff. And Lone Ranger stuff. Point. <laughs> yeah. It was what? It was Lone, Lone Ranger, Ranger yeah, stuff. Exactly. Shoot those yeah, silver Ranger, bullets. You might even be able to take out a vampire with it. Yeah. <laughs> or at least to shoot but a really gun was, out of his hand. <laughs> but really, it still was a, a cop, cup and core bullet, and it had an aluminum cap over the exposed lead tip to try to keep it from getting bashed around. Uh, Remington did a similar thing with the bronze point, but they really didn't improve what is the essence of keeping that bullet in one piece for the deep penetration we want on our faster bullets, especially from our magnums and on the bigger animals. Yeah. So, uh, you know, once the bonding thing got out and others started to make it and then swift a frames, boy, they took both, you know, the best of both worlds. They took the partition, they beefed it up with thicker walls and they did some bonding in the rear. So there you really help things out. I can't yeah. remember if it was the rear or the nose that got bonded on that a frame. But that was in the late seventies, kind of the premier dangerous game, big game hunting bullet. I think it and still from is. There on out, everybody started making variations on the theme. I yeah. didn't realize A frames were, you know, out for that long. Yeah, I think Bill. It was the late seventies, wasn't when Bill Hober and Swift bullets. Yeah, well, to, yeah. Bill was the second guy in. He bought the company from the original. I'm forgetting the name right now of the the guy who started it in the seventies. Guy out of I think he was out of Kansas. Yeah, and then Bill picked up the company. And he's done a heck of a job with it. He he improved all all aspects of that bullet. I mean, it was a great bullet to start with, but 
Then he yeah. came out with a Sirocco, which it, the A-frame is a great bullet for closer range because it does not have a high BC, but oh my gosh, is it built for, for uh, penetration. Yeah. That bullet just keeps it going, you know, and it's pretty consistent. I've taken a lot of game in Africa with it, fair number over here. And it, it and the Barnes X bullet are the two that come out of an animal looking like the advertising photographs <laughs> of them. They yeah. pretty much do what they say they're going to do every time. Those are the bullets that we use in the Pendleton ammunition bear hammer lineup is the a frame mm -hmm. and the TSX and, yeah. and the TTSX really we've, we've incorporated. I mean, that's just a tip TSX and the, those bullets, like you said, they come out of an animal in photo pose ready. I mean, for the magazine cover or the art advertisement yeah. or whatever yeah. it might be. And, but I mean, for the last, I remember 20 something years ago when I was guiding in Alaska, the, the, the older guys I was working for, they all said the same thing. If a brown bear hunter is coming to Alaska, they need to have an A-frame, like A-frame, A-frame, A-frame. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I was telling, it was funny. We were looking at this video earlier today. Um, you know, Jack was showing me a video where I was telling a hunting story in one of our first yeah. podcasts. And I talking about how I had to kill a bear at my feet, you know, and it's because the client shooting a, oh, I can't remember what it was, 300 something Magnum. Uh, you know, he poured the coals to this thing and the bear wasn't stopping. And we were walking back down the beach and I said, what bullets were you shooting? And he handed me a box of like $25 at the time, $25 Remington Corlock bullets. And I remember throwing Ouch. them in the, I threw them in the ocean, like, like literally walking down the, <laughs> like a, a shoreline. And I looked at the guy and I was like, you came on a $20,000 bear hunt with a $20 box of bullets. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, uh, you know, did you read your equipment list? Yeah. It says a frame for a reason. He goes, yeah, but it was a 200 something grain bullet. Same thing, right? Like when I was a kid, same thing, 200 grain. I just wanted to make sure I had 200 grain bullets or whatever, you know, and, he had oh, no idea the difference, and yeah. he got an education and an earful that day because yeah. I about got my shorts ate out with that bear. I mean, it was a bad deal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and Ron, when you were saying it it performs as advertised, what are you meaning by that? So our listeners kind of understand what those sure. What the, well, a bullet, yeah. yeah, what they're actually doing upon impact. You bet, you bet. Of course, we see advertisements for every bullet showing this perfect mushroom, right? There's a little shank behind the bullet, and it's mushroomed about one and a half to two times its original diameter. And that is supposed to tell you, boy, this bullet expands, so you contact more tissue to do more destruction. And it stays in one piece and penetrates deeply because it maintains its momentum. Well, that's fine if you slip it between two ribs and just hit the lungs. <laughs> but if you hit a major muscle group or a bone, man, that bullet can get torn into pieces mm -hmm. and rattled. And I've seen him. I don't I couldn't even count all of the pieces of lead that came out of one hundred and thirty grain cup and core bullet out of a two seventy that we shot into a bunch of water jugs. There was nothing to it breaking that bullet up except for a few little walls of plastic from the milk jugs and then all that water. But we collected all of the pieces of that bullet and there were literally hundreds of flecks of lead spread up in the bottom of those jugs. So that's the the way a bullet can break up in the real world if it is not built for proper performance, which when I say the A-frame does it, like the Barnes Extra, a lot of copper bullets now are doing it, they will expand reliably to what their diameter should be at the impact velocity, because that's where your pressures come in, and they're going to maintain 90 to 100% of their weight. They're not going to break up, and they're not going to lose a lot of lead fragments here and there because they've hit a heavy bone. You might you know, bend it a lot and tangle it up quite a bit, 
really hit that major bone and stuff. But I don't know that I have ever weighed a recovered A-frame or Barnes that was oh, more than 10% of lost weight. Yeah. 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 That's, but, but I mean, also think about this though. So he's talking about a particular type of like controlled expansion, heavy weight yep. retention. You then take like an Acubond or an ELDX or an Interbond bullet or even the Swift Scirocco, right, Ron? And and mm-hmm. now you have a bullet that's maybe designed to hold 70 or 80% of its weight Wait. and expand right. 20 to 30% of it. And then you go one step further and you get into like, uh, you've probably heard of hammer bullets there in Montana. Um, you bet. Yeah, I just I spent a lot of money with them today before lunch. Holy cow, <laughs> I had to go eat mac and cheese, you know. Um, but the, but, but we, you know, that bullet's going to drop about 40% retain about 60%, but then you go to like your, um, DRT, those dynamic research technology bullets, the burger VLD hunting bullets, those bullets are designed to hit on impact and basically they're called frangible. They just, they do what he's talking about where they just go to pot. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you know, but they expend all of their energy inside the chest cavity and animal and ideally Ron, right. They're going in spinning at some crazy, uh, revolutions per second, you know, just spinning like a madman. They hit the chest cavity within a few inches. They're coming apart, but they're, let's say using a blender effect. And so there's a lot of, there's so many different bullets now on the market today. Like bullet technologies have gone crazy. They're so good now that you can actually pick a bullet that's going to perform a particular way when it makes impact. What's your personal favorite, Ron? What type of a bullet do you like? Do you like the frangibles or do you like those bullets that stay together? You know, I hate to say this, but I really don't have a favorite. I've had excellent luck with both types. In some cases, the frangible ones have saved my bacon or my buddy's bacon. He hit a bear a little too far back and it would have been a classic gut shot and you're in trouble except for one piece of that bullet broke away got through the diaphragm and into the lungs and did him in wow so sometimes you want that and and i have taken quite a few deer with some really frangible bullets i probably shouldn't have been using more of a coyote bullet but i knew what i had on my hands and i knew that if i could get it behind the shoulder and not hit any major muscle groups it was going to get inside and do that hand grenade thing just like on a prairie dog yeah. Only it's going to be right on the heart of the deer. And those have been some of my fastest kills I've ever done with, with any bullet short of hitting a spine or something. Massive trauma. So, you know, there, there's, I mean, that's a lot yeah, of hydrostatic yeah. damage, right? Well, you know, I don't know. We can argue hydrostatic shock. I always like talking about it because nobody can absolutely prove it <laughs> exactly what it is. But I think what happens with this hand grenade effect with that frangible bullet exploding in there like that is that your wound channel is almost like a softball. Yeah. And depending on how big the bullet is, how much velocity is carrying and how much energy, the size of the softball can grow to a cantaloupe. Maybe, you know, it gets yeah. pretty big. Well, if, if you do that right on the heart or the lungs just over the heart, you are carrying so much um so many arteries and blood vessels that you just drop the blood pressure in that animal so quickly. Yeah. And I think that's why they die so fast. Mm. Have you shot the I've DRTs? I, you know, I've used, I've practiced with them, but I've never hunted with them. I had a box in 243 and it was like, whoa, you shoot a milk jug and coming out the backside of that thing is you can see what it would do to a deer, but yeah. it wasn't very accurate in the rifle I was testing it in. So I didn't take it hunting, but I could certainly see where it would work. Wow. I'll tell you, we might have to send you some DRTs. Uh, what, uh, I mean, like what to, 
I guess the first question up would be like, you know, what do you think your favorite hunting caliber is like for deer, like your, your favorite deer, deer go-to deer caliber today? Once again, I'm all over the map on that, but I generally stick with the 25s to the sevens. Um, 6.5s, I'm starting to play around quite a bit with it. I'm not a crazy fan for the Creed more. It's a little bit slow. I'm more of a 270 kind of guy. So I've been using 270s, uh, 280 Ackley Improved, 284 Winchester, 7mm 08s for a lot of my mountain hunting in the last 20, 25 years. And uh, 25 on 6, I'm starting to use a lot more now. Used it years ago and kind of got away from it, getting back to it. So I'm really getting away from the 30s because, as we said, the bullets today are so good. And they're so effective in the lighter calibers that I just enjoy carrying a lighter rifle and making a precision shot with it. So I would have to go with one of the 6.5s or maybe a 7 or the one of the, the new 270s. That 6.8 Western is really starting to impress me. So that I had that as a note here um, to ask you. Cause I had a client bring it up the other day and I don't know a lot about it. Um, I think it's like a 300 Winchester short mag neck down to something, right? I, I don't know. I'd like to hear what your thoughts on that 6.8 Western is. Cause I don't know a lot about it. Oh yeah. I'm happy to talk about that. What they did was they took the 270 WSM and they pushed the shoulder back a little bit. And the reason was then they could stick a longer bullet in it, boat tail, 160 to 175 grain bullets i think so you've got what is all the rage now the long heavy for caliber high ballistic coefficient bullets for better performance at extreme ranges and uh, then they increased the twist rate on the rifles for it so you've essentially got the 270 wsm with a heavier bullet you give up a few grains of powder capacity because you had to push that shoulder back so that the bullet wouldn't protrude into the powder space to me, that's not the end of the world um, if you get a little bullet back into the powder space, except, yeah, you might lose 50 feet per second top-end velocity, but you still got the advantage of that high BC bullet, mm-hmm. which is probably what you wanted in the first place to really save you on wind deflection mainly and retaining more energy downrange. So I'm not so worried about that, but you couldn't do it with the original 270 WSM because of the overall length. The cartridge overall length with your bullet seated you can't stick those longer bullets on there without going pretty deep in, costing even more of your velocity. But even then, I'm not too worried about it until you start thinking about hand loads. The more times you resize that brass and hand load it, the more chances you're going to build up that little donut inside of the junction of the neck and the shoulder. So your bullet's coming down to be seated, and you hit this buildup of uh, material, the brass from the case, and that increases the tension on your bullet and your pressures go up. And then they're not consistent from load to load. And guys can get in trouble if they ignore that or don't know that it's even there. They just keep loading and they're getting higher and higher pressures every time they do a new load. <laughs> and yeah, they can yeah. reach dangerous levels. And that's if they're just so neck sizing it, right? It no, it's more than neck sizing. You have to get inside to uh, ream away that buildup. The, no, the I mean, that, the, donut, the donut really starts to show up for the guys that are just neck-sizing their breasts, like fire-forming their breasts, right? Yeah. Like if you're full-length sizing yeah. it, that's a less and less of a problem, right? Right. Yeah. I think if you're full-length sizing, you're going to see it stretching out in the neck where you can trim it off up in the end at the mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll yeah. tell you what. With the 6.8 Western, I mean, and, and look, we're about 
uh, out of time for this particular segment of, of the podcast and we have to go to a short commercial break, but, but that I, I'm a boring caliber guy. Like I've, I've everybody in the office gets tired of uses hearing me talk. two or three and that's it. Yeah. yeah. I, I like my 270, a big 270 fan. I like the 300 wind mag, the 375 and the 338. And, and, uh, you know, and even some of the base, like the 25 odd sixes, um, the six, five Creedmoor took about like forever to warm up with me. And of course my sponsors are forcing me to shoot with the six, five PRC yeah. and the 300 PRC some, but, but, uh, the six, eight Western, I don't know for me, um, I think I just, I thought it was just one more toy in the chest, you know, I guess, so to speak. And, but Hey, once again, uh, it's, everybody likes variety, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, I really yeah. like that six, five PRC that I took with, uh, Oh, to Utah, to, the, to Utah. I yeah. mean, it performed really well. Tell you what, to that effect, we'll talk about those carbon yeah. core technology barrels in just a minute. Everybody will be right back from the short commercial break. This segment has been sponsored by Burris optics and the new, Burris Eliminator 5 Laser Scope. This segment of the Steve's Outdoor Adventures podcast is sponsored by Bergara Rifles, where the people truly make the difference. All right, everybody, we're back here in Steve's Outdoor Adventures podcast studio, and Travis and I have been sitting here with Ron Spomer talking about guns and ammunition, our rights and privileges as gun owners and hunters and whatnot. And, you know, we've been talking about bullet technologies Um but this particular segment of the show is sponsored by Bergara Rifles and the new Carbon Core technology. Ron, I don't know if you've seen the the, the new press releases on this, but um, are you aware that Bergara launched a, a new Carbon Core barrel technology, that, like literally announced it this past week? No, I didn't see that. I knew they were working on something. I talked to the guys last summer, but they weren't spilling the beans yet. Yeah, yeah. So about the time they weren't spilling the beans, they were shipping us guns. <laughs> yeah, so we got a chance to play with these new things. I, I guess. And before I jump into that, let me ask this: For I don't know these carbon fiber barrels, they've been out for a while, right? Like Christensen Arms came out with at least the first one I had ever heard about. I mean, you've been around the guns a lot more than I have. I mean, how do you feel about carbon barrels and you know and 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 and, and the companies that have been making them? So you know today. Well, they're obviously doing what they are advertised to do. I think that that's great. You know, they shave some weight off and make it stiffer. Um, I only question I have is on hoop strength on the darn things. I know if I have a steel barrel, good old fashioned, it's pretty darn durable. I can bang on it and drop it on the rocks and I might ding it up a little bit externally, but it's not going to turn into a pretzel. It's not going to snap and break. I do not have enough experience with carbon fiber barrels on rifles to know if that's going to hold up with fishing rods i do know <laughs> you yeah. whack a fly rod and you break the fibers on it and it starts to go to heck in a hurry it's because done, yeah. those fibers yeah. have been compromised what about barrel i don't har- know if that happens on rifle barrels what about barrel harmonics you know anything with does it change that at well all? it must well i mean look so realistically these barrels aren't 100 percent carbon right they're not like a fishing rod right you, you typically have liner. Yeah, you've typically yeah. got like a number two taper barrel, a real whippy barrel like the Mountain 2.0 that yep. we've hung with. Yep. And then you have a carbon wrap over the outside of that. So you still have your steel barrel on the inside. But if you do put a big ding in it, a big chunk missing, that could mess with your barrel harmonics, mm-hmm. I would think, or heat dissipation and things of that nature. And um, so, so it, w- that, it wouldn't necessarily change your barrel life in any way. No, I mean, you just don't. Don't get them that hot, you know, (laughs) but the, but this, um, carbon core technology that Bergara, so when they sent me the first two 
They sent me the MG Light, which is that magnesium stock gun that folds when yep. you're going to take on the line. And yep. then we got the Divide, which was the adjustable cheek piece gun. And let me tell you, you know, I thought, oh, it's just another carbon fiber gun. The guys were like, no, now you, before you shoot this thing, you're going to listen. And I was like, okay, cool. I'd love to learn, you know, and what they did was they came up with their own technology so that there was a weave of like metal uh, in the carbon. And the idea of this was not just to give it strength, but to give it heat dissipating qualities, because if you shoot, you know, round after round run, your barrels get hot. hot. Well, yeah. they were saying that the carbon barrels of the past have not dissipated heat properly. And the, a friend of mine was working on like a, a carbon suppressor, like a carbon fiber suppressor. And that was his problem was heat dissipation. Like, how do you make this, you know, work? Well, with the with this carbon cure, you know, these this technology that Bergara came out with, this this weave dissipates heat. Well, like if you sit down with that divide rifle that we shot, like yep. um, you know, uh Dakota, uh, Russell and I, he's the brand manager for uh Bergara now, he was the national sales manager. He and I sat down at the range and we just started shooting. Six five PRC, bang, 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 three thousand feet per second, one right after the other. Barrel never got hot. It was unbelievable how quickly the heat was dissipating out of that. So you know, the, this new craze of, you know, uh, people that want to have the, the carbon fiber barrels is, you know, kind of like the 6.5 Creedmoor. All of a sudden it bursts on the scene and it's like, ooh, everybody's got to have one. So I'm excited about it, but I don't think they necessarily shoot better. Um, I think it's just a personal preference thing. And like, and like Ron was saying, they, the the weight, they did exactly what they're supposed to. You're taking a lot, you have a lot less steel. Instead of having like a five taper barrel, you've got a two taper barrel with a carbon wrap over it. Um, I, I don't will know. say though, the, I still kept the target that oh, I yeah. shot before. The, so for me, <laughs> it shot one of the best, you know, groups I've ever shot out of any gun. I could just be the way it was set Could've up. Been. I heard an expert set that one up. So. <laughs> <Could've> <laughs> but, been. but have you shot the Christensen arms guns at all run? Not in recent years, but I did uh, some work with the 300 mag. It was incredibly accurate back when they were just coming out with their carbon fiber barrels and stuff. They make a heck of a if they're making as good a quality as they did then they're making a heck of a rifle. Yeah, and and, and I mean you know I haven't done um, much with the older Christensen Arms guns because when they came out I was sponsored by yet a different gun manufacturer back in the mid to early two thousands. But the you know what I've been able to do is in the last say four or five years with the Pendleton ammunition we're shooting load development for clients rifle stuff. I got a lot of those like Christensen Arms Ridgeline guns and stuff in, and they all shot really nice. I just thought they were kind of bulky. Like, you know, you got to remember, if you're going to have a big carbon barrel, you're going to have a fairly bulky stock that kind of goes with it. But um, but the when the Bergaras came in, I found them a bit more streamlined. Um, <clears> and, I but agree I, with that. Yeah, but they sure shot nice. Um, and and But I also don't – I mean, we shoot the, the Highlanders and the Mountain 2.0s, all the steel barrel guns, and I mean, and they shoot good too. I think it's just really a personal preference thing. But, um, you know, speaking of PRCs, I mean, I asked you about the 6.5 Creedmoor in the last one. What do you know about the new 300 PRC? Oh, I just did some stuff on the 300 PRC. You know, it's kind of a glorified 300 wind mag. A lot of people are complaining that, oh, they're reinventing the 300 wind mag, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't shoot any faster. Well, maybe 50 feet per second faster, blah, blah. But it's set up to shoot the longest, heaviest bullets. Yeah. It's kind of like the 6.5 Creedmoor in a 30. So you're going to match your velocities of the 300 wind mag, but you're going to be able to shoot 230, even 250 grain bullets because of the 
increased twist rates, but it's longer. Overall cartridge length on that thing is even longer than a 375 H&H Magnum, which is your full Magnum length action. So you're going to have to have a special rifle or modify the magazine to fit this thing. 3.7 inches long with those long bullets seated out on it. But yeah. what they did when they designed it was they maximized it for the best chance to get an on-target hit first crack out of the barrel at 1,500 yards or so. Yeah, It was a request from special ops in the military for this sniping work they need to do. You're up against enemy fighters now that are getting fairly sophisticated. They've captured enough of our stuff and whatnot. All oh, look at what happened in Afghanistan. We yeah. gave it to them. Yeah. Don't even go there, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so the idea is not to go faster necessarily than the wind mag, but it's to have a more efficient cartridge with these longer bullets. So they took the rim diameter and the head diameter of the uh, 300 wind mag, but instead of stepping down at the belt, since you don't need the belt for head spacing on a bottleneck cartridge, they just left the walls going straight out. Obviously, you taper a little bit to the head, you know, but you know, they didn't step it down from 0.532 down to 0.513. That's what the wind mag does. Yeah. So you're losing a lot of powder volume there. So they got rid of the belt. They caught a little more powder volume. They pushed the shoulder back. Again, that's donut thing with the longer bullet and all. But still, they had to extend the cartridge overall length quite a bit. So there's your only challenge is you pretty much have to buy a rifle that's been chambered for it or do a lot of modification on a standard action to get anything to work in it. The bullets just sit out too far. Oh, for sure. I mean, look, we load a lot of 300 PRC at the Pendleton Ammo Shop. I mean, lots. A lot of 300 Wind Mag and... Uh-huh. I mean, in fact, we just did some 300 Win Mag 212 grain ELDX bolts. 212 grain ELDX bolt is arguably the number one, you know, selling 300 PRC bullet, right? Uh-huh. And, you know, that's got what a 673 G1 ballistic coefficient, but a 300 Win Mag is going to push that bullet at 2,700 to uh, 2,775, maybe 2,800 feet per second if it's a longer barrel gun. Um, whereas the 300 PRC is going to shoot that bullet say 2875 to 2925 feet per second. So you've got a, a up yeah. to a couple hundred feet per second difference between them. But like like you know Ron was saying, you know, we load those at 3.6. Um you know, 3.600 overall length. I mean the burgers, you got to uh-huh. be shooting something like the burger uh elites or something like that to really get 37 um you know on that on that overall length cuz you could push your maybe your 225 grain match bullets that far. Um, but, but realistically, you know, your, your, your Sammy length, your Sammy's 3.6 you're on for that, the, the, the 375 and whatnot. Um, you know, another you know, funny, I, I just thought about this. We, we skipped one six, five earlier. Roy Weatherby's probably given us the finger from the grave as a six, five, three. That's another one. That's like a 3.6, you know, that's a long bugger, but, um, uh, one of my least favorite calibers on the planet. Sorry, Roy. Um, but, uh, but the, this 300 PRC, you know, it, it seems like like with the 300 wind mags, you're jumping those bullets into the lands a lot further than, you know, let's say the 300 PRC is, it seems like it's designed to have that bullet seated way up there. Like, I mean, you're, it's almost like you're starting with the bullet, Touching. those big, long, high BC bullets way up in the, in the lands. Am I wrong on that, Ron, or is that just, the, like you said, the kind of the cold bullet oh, yeah. out of the box? No, you're on it. They're not in the lands, but they're obviously seated close to the lands. It's just that the throat or the lead in that chamber is yeah. a lot longer to accommodate that bullet. Yeah. So instead of shoving it down into the powder space, you're able to st- keep it 
nosed way out there. You're pushing it out. Yeah. Yeah. I but mean, more, in, oh. more important than that though, is the diameter of the throat. The Sammy specs on a win 300 win mag at the throat is 0.315. And what they did with that 300 PRC was they made it 0.3088. So you barely have any tolerance in this space. You're keeping that bullet pretty snug in the neck. So you're not going to drop it if you don't have it perfectly chambered. You know how a, a, a slightly loose cartridge sitting in the chamber can tilt down so you don't have a perfect bullet to bore alignment. Yeah. And then you end up. Yeah, you end up torquing that bullet a little bit. It yaws that before it gets to the lands, and it doesn't hit them evenly, and there it compromises your accuracy a little bit. And that's another one of the big selling points on that PRC is by tightening up that throat. They're preventing a lot. I just say it's a match-grade chamber is what it amounts to. Yeah, match-grade chamber and a hunting caliber. To yep. I mean, I, re- those- I really like it for, like, grizzly and moose, just a little bit you know, bigger, faster than the 300 wind mag. Right. So I have an elk in Utah last year that'll agree with you. On that. But <laughs> I mean, it's, I like the bigger, heavier bullets. They have yeah. a high ballistic coefficient, shoot a long ways with them, which, you know, just like with the six, five Creedmoor or six, five PRC, it's fun to clank steel with it. But when you're shooting a 200, you know, this goes back to margin of error, right? If you're firing a 220 grain ELD. bullet, high BC bullet downrange, and you catch that elk just a little bit further back at 700 yards, you're going to do a lot more damage than you would if you were shooting yeah. a six five, right? It's so, I mean, more energy at that point. Yeah, it's yeah. a little missile. You know, <laughs> that's the best way to put it. Yeah, I was curious if you'd had a chance to spend any time with. The, have you shot some of the three hundred PRCs? Yeah, I worked with them a little bit down on FTW Ranch on steel, but I haven't done any hunting with it. And I wouldn't probably uh, because I have three hundred wind bags and, and I know what they can do, and for the distances at which I take game anyway, I really see no advantage in the PRC, but. If I were a serious long-range target shooter, uh, definitely would get it. If I were a young guy right now thinking I need a 300 mag for a lifetime of hunting and target shooting, and I'm going to do a lot of target shooting, and I'm a hand loader, I would get it. But there are not very many factory loads made for it right now. It's not easy to find a lot of brass options. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's got to it's got to put a little uh, time in here to get some head of steam going here before it's really as versatile as a 300 wind mag. Yeah. Right now, I think you're better off with the 300 wind mag. You just you can get anybody and everybody loads for it. All kinds of bullet options, including stepping down to 150s and even 130 grain bullets. Just some light barns and hammers in it. And you're going to have a lot more options that way. But if you're a hand loader and you've got some brass, hey, go for the PRC. And then you've got, you know, you can always throttle down but it's pretty hard to throttle up once you've reached your max <laughs> yeah my dad yeah. and i were talking the other night if you could only have two calibers like as a young you know hunter or or whatever it may be it's and we were arguing the difference between like a 300 prc and a 6.5 prc is the two calibers and that would cover all big game north you know north american big game animals or would it be a 300 wind mag and a 6.5 creedmoor is very interesting Those are my only two options those are the only those just, two combinations those two combos I mean, if there's no, I mean, really there's no ammo lot, right? limitations, like if there's no ammunition right. limitations, I take the PRCs. Yeah. I, I think I, that's what I was saying too. Yeah. Cause I mean, but I've shot them a lot in the last few years. So I've, I've got, I mean, but then again, I love to tell everybody, I took literally the entire super slam in North America, all 29 animals with a 300 wind mag yeah. and 180 grain Barnes TTSX. Yeah. <laughs> How do you argue that? Yeah. I can't argue with yeah. that. Hey, we've got to take, yeah, we got to take a quick commercial break. 
This segment was sponsored by Bergara Rifles and the new Bergara Carbon Cure Barrels. I will be right back in just a few minutes. This segment of the Steve's Outdoor Adventures podcast is sponsored by Marathon Seat Covers. We've got you covered. All right, we're back here in the podcast talking with Ron Spomer. We've covered a lot of pretty killer options in in in, in topics here in the guns and ammunition yep. and you know rights to keeping bear and hunt and everything else. Um, but uh, you know, as we go into this segment of the show. I want to remind everybody that this show is only possible because we have our sponsors, and this one is sponsored by Marathon Seat Covers, 100% made in America up in Bozeman, Montana. Uh, and on Ron- that note, I just put mine in, the FJ. Oh, Love did it. you? Yes. Ah. You like Love it? it. Love it. So Not easy knuckles. to clean. Like dog hair? Just sh- sh- yeah. Oh, yeah. I told Game you. Game changer. I, I mean, I still have the one in my other yeah. truck for 14 years. So, yep. um, All right. Ron, we've talked a little bit about hunting, but let's get down to the nitty gritty because I know a lot of people that, you know, are, let's say, fans of your YouTube channel or they're, um, they watch our television show or listen to our podcast. These people hunt and everybody's talking about, like, we were just talking, like Travis said, well, if you can only use two calibers, blah, blah. I asked you earlier today, like, okay, if, what's your favorite deer cartridge? And you were like, man, you were all always like 25s and 27s and, I mean, I'm just surprised you didn't throw like something 26 in there, but then you said six fives and I thought, Oh my gosh, but, let, but let, you know, me and Travis will each answer this, but if you had to pick one deer cartridge to use for the rest of your life and, and I'm going to, I'm going to add to that one bullet to shoot in that cartridge, which one? Oh would my be? God. Oh, I'm oh, getting down got- to it. I'm getting down to it. I mean, yeah, I mean you're, you're, look, cool. you're a freelancer, you're a freelance guy. So you have to write about a lot of different things, but you've also had the benefit of doing a lot of things. And, and I would go so far as to say it, it it's your favorite, but loosely your favorite with some others that are peripheral cartridges. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, but I mean, and, oh, seriously favorite deer card. Like if you had to pick just one, what would it be? Just boom. Oh, First one man. that comes to mind. 284 Winchester. 284 Winchester. That is not one that I expected to hear. And what bullet? What bullet would you shoot out of it? I'm probably going to shoot. I might try a hammer bullet. I'm just getting into the hammers, and I'm really liking what I see. But I've been a Barnes guy forever, so I know what the Barneses can do. A 120 grain Barnes tip triple shock in that thing is pretty devastating for anything and everything. I've taken a lot of game with that 284. Uh, um, and because I had it in an ultralight arms model 20 mountain rifle, four and three quarter pounds. By the time I've got it scoped and stuffed with ammo and ready to go, I'm still under six pounds Jeez. and you can go a lot further carrying a six pound rifle than you can a 10. That's so I've kind of biased that way. I just have had so much luck with that and taken so much game with it and found that at 2,850 feet per second with a 140 grain bullet in that thing, I could pretty much do anything out to 400 yards. I don't know that I ever missed with that rifle. I'm not bragging, guys, but I'm serious. <laughs> nice. I'm talking oh, nice. coyotes and coos deer and and sheep. Uh, I shot a shot my first doll sheep up in the Alaska range running at 350 yards with that thing. <laughs> Took me two shots to catch up with him, but but, but you caught him. <laughs> I caught him by golly, you know. And but, I've taken game at four four fifty with it, which for me this is just good old maximum point blank range work. You know, no fancy scopes or anything. Back in the eighties and nineties, yeah, 
I would just hold high. I, once I knew my trajectories, I knew that at 400 yards, I just need to show a little daylight over his back <laughs> in line with the shoulder, hold it over his back, see a little bit of daylight, drop it right into the arc. Yeah. It worked so well so often that I could pretty much, if I had to, take game at 400 yards with it. I think the farthest I probably ever reached was 450. But you know what hunting is like. You generally get within 300 yards. Oh, yeah. Sometimes you, you know, sometimes you need that you're up there in Alaska and you spend all this time and money and there's your target at 400 yards. You, And if you know your gun, you can do it, you can do it. But that gun, despite that extremely lightweight, and everybody would say, oh, God, you know, you can't have an accurate rifle. It's too light. Buffalo chips, man. <laughs> yeah, I get it, it. It was just absolutely deadly. Well, now, I've always viewed the 284 Winchester as a lever action gun. And, yep. I mean, is yours a lever gun? No, no. This no. is a bold action. That's what I thought. Yeah, I mean, you know. I didn't realize. I mean, and this is just not being around that cartridge a lot, but. You know, when you said like, wow, one grain, 120 grain TSX, I was thinking, man, I, I was expecting you to say something lead tip, like that was more for a lever gun. And then you said, mentioned hammer bullets. And I thought, well, wait a minute, this, he's talking yeah, about yeah. a bolt action rifle. You bet. No, Mel Forbes, um, new uh, ultralight arms is what he started with in 1987 or eight. I think he came out with this. So it was one of those early rifles that had synthetic stock, mm -hmm. but he he shaved weight by reducing the action size, not just shortening a barrel or trimming the barrel down to a number two or something. He's got a normal weight barrel on it, sporting weight barrel, 22 inches. The stock is fiberglass, stiff, uh, but lightweight. His action is trimmed to a fairly well. What he did was he tested modern steels for their tensile strength and all and determined that the old Model 70s and 700s and all the rifles from the 20th century – were overbuilt. Sure, they're standing up to the pressures, but they could stand up to a quadruple of pressures probably. Yeah. So he worked with and tested, and he just kept reducing the size of his actions and testing it, and he would put double pressure loads in. You know, if a, say a 65,000 PSI cartridge, 270 or something, he would test it to double that and not blow up that rifle. Gee, many Christmas. I'll be down. So he ends up with what looks like a 22 rimfire. And when you first see it in the size of the bolt, you think, what? What is this dinky little thing? Is it from Mattel? Pardon? Is it from Mattel? You know, it feels like a toy. Yeah, 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 exactly. But it has a perfect balance, and it is so easy to carry and get on target so quickly. I've used it on running coyotes a whole bunch, uh, running whitetails, whatever happened to be out there that I was hunting. When it came time to pull that rifle up and shoot, it was no question. I just, it was almost like shooting a shotgun, almost instinctive. You just threw it on your shoulder, got the crosshair on him, and kaplunk. Shot my biggest white tail, probably, is 185-ish something net and grossed it just like 179, 6 ace or something, right on the edge, making it. But it was running flat out at about 200 yards when I pulled the trigger on that. And the crazy thing was, I was watching him from about 100 yards where I jumped him in a plum thicket, and I went, yeah, I don't know if I want to take this one. I should look for a bigger one. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm watching him run through my scope, at, and the whole time, I don't know why, I'm not being arrogant or anything, but I just had this feeling that I could shoot this deer anytime I wanted to. And I kept watching him run and adding up his antler size until I finally decided, well, I suppose I better shoot him. Better trip the trigger on that one. <laughs> hey, yeah. let me tell you something. It's a good thing I wasn't there with you, Ron, because 
I would have probably bumped you out of the way and killed <laughs> the deer. Him, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I, can, I can understand that one, but I was all by my lonesome. So I had the time to lick him over yeah. and I had the 17,000 acre ranch all to myself pretty much. Oh, two of the guys hunting on it. And that's actually why I shot him because I was figuring those, one of those other guys would probably get him if I didn't, <laughs> so I better take him. <laughs> Yeah. All right, Travis. What for you? Yeah. I mean, deer cartridge. What yeah. is it going to be for me? For me, it would depend on you know what am I hunting? What species of deer? Of course. You know the yeah. style of hunt. Are you in a blind? Are you you know spot and stock with mule deer in the open terrain? But my my two, I'm going to base this off accuracy and what I've shot in the past. And the first, if it's a blind hunt, say for white tail, I'm going with the 450. Like Bushmaster. in Saskatchewan. Yeah, in Saskatchewan. Yeah, yeah. When I took the 450 up to. Uh, to Saskatchewan took that nice deer. I mean, not only was it one of the most accurate calibers ever shot at a hundred yards or so, it performed flawlessly on the animal, just like instant. I remember the video when you hit him, there was like, literally it looked like a steam engine coming yeah, out just, of that hole. You know, all this, yeah. Uh, yeah. energy and, and, and breath out of them, but that, that would be one. And then the other would be the most recent six, five PRC, um, with the one forty seven DRTs, just because it, same reason, most accurate gun and caliber I've shot probably ever. And it performed perfectly in the field. I'll tell you, I'm going to blow both of you guys away with my selection here. And it's a caliber I've done a lot with, but I really like the 308 Winchester. Nice. Yeah. I mean. Boy, you are boring. Or <laughs> <laughs> a traditionalist, one of the two. I I, I mean, it, I've shot it a long ways. Yeah. Um, I've killed animals everywhere from point blank to a long, long, long ways away with it. Um. I like the light, it's light recoiled, short action, just fun to carry. I'm, I just, I, I really have always liked that with, and I'm not one of those guys that shoots 150, 60 grain bullets. I like those 180 grain, like Swift Scirocco's mm -hmm. or TTSX's. And, um, I've just, I've always enjoyed deer hunting with the 308. And I like that. I've, I enjoyed hunting with the 6.5 PRCs and stuff like that. I shot that Coos deer in Mexico with the 6.5 yeah. PRC last year. I enjoy the, the cards are in, but if I had to pick one, I'm going to pick a 308. Nice. Every time. All right. Ron, back up. Favorite elk cartridge. Mm. No. Yeah. You guys are relentless. Oh, yeah. Dude, I've, I'm, I'm just getting started on you. This is like number two out of a list of four. You got you, you got to dig down. Just first one that comes to mind. Like, you, you got to reach in the safe real quick. There's an elk running by the front of the house. Grab, grab a gun. The, yeah, grab a gun. Which yeah. one are you grabbing? Well. It's, uh, I'm grabbing that 284 again, guys. I'm sorry. This is going to get boring, but wow. I've taken most of my elk with, with 280 actually improved seven rem mag. And, and I have years ago said the seven rem mag is my ultimate all around rifle. I don't enjoy carrying it as much as the 284, but you got a little more horsepower there. So yeah, it's going to help out a little bit for the bigger stuff. And you can shoot those 175 grain bullets pretty darn fast, 2,900 feet per second. And they got a high ballistic coefficient, high sectional density, and all the other great things going for them. And if you need to, you can step on down to the lighter bullets and hand load and make just about anything. So, yeah, it's hard to beat that 7 rim mag. But, of course, this day and age, you've got the belted cartridge and you've got better options and unbelted ones and all the rest of it. So there's just so many variables. You've got so many 7-millimeter cartridges out there. But mm -hmm. when push comes to shove, it really comes down to why do I what rifle do I enjoy carrying? I know I can go hunting and be successful with Steve's 308 or your 6.5 PRC. All of the cartridges are going to do the job, but what rifle do I enjoy carrying? Yeah, I, I love that. Yeah. I love extension. walnut stock rifles for the look, but 
when it comes to climbing around the mountains in Alaska in the rain and the snow for nine days, you don't want one. So uh-huh. that synthetic stock rifle with the lightweight, and, and since it shoots so well, a lot of people would say, well, yeah, lightweight rifle's fine for going sheep hunting, but you don't want it all the time for whitetails and stuff in the flatlands. You want a little more mass than that rifle to shoot it more accurately. Well, what's to complain about when I've never missed with that light six-pound rifle? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I've only taken one elk with that rifle, 284. One shot, dead right there. Well, I made a high shoulder shot and spined him, so of course he's dead. But sevens at similar velocities for various sevens, I've taken elk with no problem. So I don't have a, any issue about the, the cartridge of the bullet at that velocity being able to do the job. So I might as well enjoy that rifle, enjoy my hunt a lot more. I get it. I get it. No, I, I can't argue that. How about you, Travis? Mine would be 300 wind mag. 180 grain TTSXs, Barnes, of course. And I'm basing that off the Bergara Mountain Rifle yeah. 2.0. I just really like, you know, to Ron's Another point about the gun. rifle. Yeah. yeah, I really enjoy horseback hunts, you know, more of a mountain hunter if I could choose. And so that's the rifle caliber and uh, and everything that I would choose for elk, for sure. What, what's the weight of that, Travis? That's a good question. I'm going to defer to Steve on that one. About 6.9 pounds. 2.9, yeah. Yeah, 6. See, for, for me... For me, that's called a heavyweight. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, you know, you get into the Magnum caliber guns, and it oh, yeah. hurt to have a little bit more weight on yeah. them. And and right. I, I'm actually, I'll talk about something else here in just a little bit, but like suppressors and options. Like I'm, I'm, I'm becoming obsessed with some of that. But uh, all right, well, so you mentioned like you thought the seven mag might be the best all around, you know, hunting caliber. Okay, but there's mm-hmm. there there's a there there's two animals. Like I would go moose hunting with a seven mm red mag, no problem. I think, I mean, big difference, you know, is that you know the moose aren't trying to run away up a big mountainside. They're typically getting them down in the river bottom or around a lake, and you can whack them a couple times in the lungs and they tip over. I've seen them killed with a lot smaller guns and good bullet placement. But let's talk bears. Now, your two eighty four Winchester will kill a black bear at a couple hundred yards, probably no problem. Your especially your average, you know, Idaho black bear on the side of a mountain. But let's say you were in Alaska hunting a coastal black bear, and you're going to shoot this bear at a hundred, hundred, you know, for fifty to one hundred and fifty yards. And and have you hunted coastal Alaska yet, Ron? Have Have you gone after those big fat, you know, coastal bears? Yeah, I've I haven't taken one there. I take a big brown bear in uh kamchatka but i haven't hunted black bear in alaska because i can hunt them a lot cheaper here in idaho yeah but i've been up there i've taken grizzlies in alaska and i've hunted brown bear in alaska yeah but but if you were going to hunt one of those big coastal black bears you know once again black bear not a grizzly not brown bear what would your go-to caliber be well if i'm just going on one special hunt for a big bear i'm always going to take the fudge factor and go with a bigger caliber yeah i'd probably take a 338 wind mag Nah, nice call. I like that. I I just did a whole episode. I went to North Carolina this year to hunt black bears, and I mm-hmm. took the three thirty eight wind mag with two hundred fifty grain a frames. Everybody's like, "Well, you're going black bear hunting. What do you take?" A, those bears are fat. No, B, you yeah, don't want them. To, bears. You do not want them out of the field. They get in the briars. They get in the saw briars, and it's over. Yeah. Like you're now yeah. on your hands and knees, and yeah. going to go toe to toe with these things. So. I'm like a huge fan of the 338 Win Mag. I'm a super boring dude, right? <laughs> so that's you know it's in line with my 308, right? Yeah. So we get down to like the 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 you know the black bear. Well, now let's take that one step further. Now you're now you're doing a brown bear, 
you're on the Alaskan Peninsula hunting big, the biggest brown bears arguably in the world. We have a place where they're that big. Um, what are you going to take with you, Ron? What's your What's your go to if you're going to hunt for a ten foot brownie? Take a little bit of thinking, but I'd probably fall on the 416 Remington Magnum, but I might go with a 458 locked. Oh, gotcha. That that being said, I did my bear hunt with the 275 H and H, which isn't a bad option, but I wouldn't be afraid to use the 338 Win Mag on that one either. With the right 250 grain bullet, phew, gonna get the same performance. The bear's not gonna know the difference between that and the 375 H and H. But, and you know what it's like, if that bear decides he wants to get up close and personal and check your dentition, yeah. you're going to want the biggest, biggest bullet you can get. And, and guys, I don't believe that there's such a thing as a stopping bullet or a stopping cartridge because there's too many guys who are shooting big 45s and 500s and 505 Gibbs and, and they're shooting these buffalo that are charging them or even brown bears and they hit them and they hit them and they hit them again and they don't stop them. Until you hit the spine, the central nervous someplace, you're not going to stop them with a chest shot necessarily. So I think it's a bit of a misnomer to say it's a stopping rifle. That said, I still think you're better off with a bigger punch than a lesser punch. Oh, yeah. Why not? As long as you can control it. I'm with you. I'm with you. No, I'm I'm, a, I mean, personally, I I got, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time on the Alaskan Peninsula, so I know what the terrain lays out like. And, you know, one of the factors to me choosing a caliber for there would be the ability to shoot a little bit further distance. Um, I'll tell you what, we've, we've got to take another quick break. We've got to hear from a sponsor. This particular segment of the Steve's Outdoor Adventures podcast was heard and sponsored by Marathon Seat Covers, 100% made in America by our friends in Bozeman, Montana. And we come back from this short commercial break. We're going to resume this conversation, cover a few more things, and uh, I've got a couple of additional bonus uh, questions for Ron that he's just going to love. We'll be right back. The Steve's Outdoor Adventures podcast is sponsored by Farwide, the game-changing free app that puts outdoor intelligence in the palm of your hand. All right. Everybody, we're back here in the Steve's Outdoor Adventures podcast studio. Travis Price and I are joined by Ron Spomer. We're having a great conversation about guns and ammunition yep. selection. What would you use? What would you shoot? I mean, makes this a, a lot of fun. This is the type of conversation I like to have mm-hmm. as a hunter and shooter. Uh, this particular segment of the Steve's Outdoor Adventures podcast is sponsored by Pendleton Ammunition, loaded by hand, one round at a time. And with that, we will resume our conversation about what bullets and calibers and whatnot to use. Yep. Travis, we've we've heard from Ron. He's talked about the stuff he would hunt an elk with, and you said three hundred wind mag. And then uh, you know, let's talk uh, black bear. What would yep. you take on a coastal Alaskan black bear hunt? I would take the gun and shoot the same bullet as I've hunted all and killed all my black bears with. That's three hundred wind mag shooting the two hundred grain swift A frame bullets from Pendleton Ammo. I just. I can't get, why would I want to get away from that? It's worked so well and I'm confident with it and I would not choose anything else. Yeah, I, I can see that. Yep. All right. And is now that- when we get brown bear and grizzly, that's yeah. a little different, right? So if it's coastal and we're talking about brown bears, I would probably go with 338. Yep. Yep. Um, grizzly interior, as I just got back last year, yeah. I took the 300 PRC and I uh, had a 220 grain um, ELDX, if I remember correctly. And that 
again, perform flawlessly. So that's the yeah. two, depending on, you know, the species I was targeting. Well, and that's, you know, it, I mean, good thinking, right? I mean, uh, the, you know, and, and Ron, I mean, we've, 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 in the recent times, we've been able to do a lot of this Alaska bear hunting. I mean, my the last 20 something years of my career, I've spent more than my fair share amount of time in Alaska. And, you know, we talk about, um, let's say going on the peninsula where you might have to shoot 300, 350, maybe even 400 yards for a brown bear, not necessarily a coastal bear like in southeast Alaska where you might be shooting one at, say, 50 to 100 yards up on those open rolling hillsides. Sometimes you have to be able to put a shot out there. And mm-hmm. this, 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 for a guy that's a 338 fan like myself, this one blows our way. But we've killed a pile of bears now with the 300 magnums and the 220 grain you know, bullets, these controlled expansion bullets, like the 220 grain ELDX or the 220 grain, um, or the 200 grain, um, Acubons and, and, uh, a frames, a frames, our favorite big bear. But if I'm going to go to the peninsula, I'm, I'm going to take the 300 PRC. And if you look at the amount of energy that makes, is it the same as a 375? No, but it's going to give me more versatility and more distance. I'm hoping I draw my Kodiak tag deal hunt this year on Kodiak Island I'm not going to shoot 300 yards. I'm going to be shooting 100, 150 yards at tops. I'm going to take a 375. I'm, I've got. The, I put in the order literally today nice. for that new yeah. Rio Canyon, the, the Bergara Carbon Cure Canyon. You know, it's the only gun they're making in 375 right now. But I want that. Like, if I know that my shot distance guaranteed is going to be under 150 yards, I want the 375. Um, 300 grain A frames. You know, I love that. I love that, and and hopefully that. Um, you know, that once again, I don't have a shot past say 100, 150 yeah. yards. Now, if I'm coastal black bear hunting, I like that 338, same as Ron. I want that 250 grain swift a frame. I'm going to drop the bear hammer on him. I'm going to let him cook. Um, but, the but in these bears, you know, there's so, so many good calibers, you know, like 30 years ago, Ron, you guys would have been like, yeah, 416, you know, four, 375 big, but with these, you know, with new technologies, faster burning powders, you're getting more velocities. You've got all of these factors that come into play that make the 338 all of a sudden a real compelling option for somebody to take. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I mean, you tell me, Ron, I mean, how, how, are, how do the new bullet technologies today, uh, you know, affect how you look at what caliber to take versus what you would have taken 30 years ago? Oh, it's huge. I mean, the, you know, the powders, yeah, a little bit, but it's the bullets that are making all the difference. Yeah. And that is, you know, this 250 grain A-frame and a 338 wind mag up against a 375 H&H with a 300 grain A-frame. You get out there past 125 yards and you've actually got more energy in that 338 bullet. Yeah. yeah. If you're pushing them to their maximum velocity, this is because that 375 H&H is not pushing the bullet quite as fast. Yeah. And it, it starts to make a difference. And you've actually got a higher sectional density in the 250 grain 338 bullet. Well, back that up though. There's another option there, Ron, in that 375, and that's the 270 grain Swift A frame. Yeah, but then your SD goes down. Although I think the A frame is going to penetrate just plenty fine. Well, but but is that would be? Yeah. Does SD? Does your? your, I should say BC. Your set. You know, or your sectional density. Does any of that really matter inside 100 yards? You know, I mean, like, yeah, you're you're throwing a freight train. Right. No, the, the BC doesn't matter at all on this stuff. We're, you, you've got to get out past 300 yards before it starts to make any kind of a difference. That's yeah. appreciable. But as far as retained energy, it's going to make a little bit of a difference. But again, not inside of 100 yards. It's it's the um, 
The SD, though, that's valuable just because of the potential penetration improvement. And they're not a huge difference. I think the SD on a 300-grain bullet in 37 caliber is about 3, maybe 310, somewhere in that range. Yeah. And the 250 in a 338, you're closer to 315, 313, somewhere in there. I'll be darned. So, yeah, and a little bit better. But I don't think your your brown bear is going to notice the difference. But if a guy wants to, I mean, is you know, we're sitting here discussing what ifs, and when you're looking at a various cartridge choices, I think you need to consider all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt about it. I mean, you're on the razor's edge there, right? Which one to take? Which one to do what with? You, you know, bet. And, I mean, it's a no-brainer for me on a coastal black bear. I'm taking the 338 Win Mag all day long. Yep. Same gun I took to North Carolina. Mm-hmm. That bear he went to his grave very quickly. I mean, it was quick and, and, and I loved it, but you know, the one cartridge that I didn't talk about was what would I use if I was going to go elk? My favorite elk cartridge, right? I'm working my list back. I know what you're going to go with. Do you? Yep. Pick it. You're going back to the 308. No, 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 no. 338, man. No, no, no. I'm, I'll tell you what. And and I, I used it this year. I like the energy and accuracy of the 300 PRC. Mm. You know, as long as I can keep ammunition going down the barrel, yep. like, you know, Ron said, you can get a box of 300 wind mag ammo in a grocery store in Alaska, but you're not going to find any 300 PRC. Yeah. Um, you know, the pharmacy down the street probably got some ammo. I've probably got four or five rounds of 300 wind mag rolling around on the floorboard mm-hmm. of my truck. You know, my truck's probably going to get robbed now. But the the reality is, is that, you know, you can find 300 wind mag ammo more readily yeah, available than sure. 300 PRC, but I own an ammo company, so I get to say... I'm going to use whatever I want. (laughs) And and I like the accuracy, the energy, the range. I like everything about that 300 PRC simply because, I mean, everything I've pointed it at so far is, you know, gone to the freezer. It's, it's been amazing, you know? Um, Well, that, that's a good point. Steve, you and Travis both have made this point is that, you know, your rifle, your one particular rifle, you know, it so well, yeah. there's a whole lot of value in that. Cause the man who, who knows his gun and feels comfortable with it, I don't care if he's shooting a 243 Winchester, he's probably going to be darn effective with it. Well, Whereas same, if you say, well, gosh, I, I need a new big super Magnum because of the particular hunt I'm going on. And you're not familiar with that rifle. You might not do as well with it. Well, it's the well, same thing in baseball, yeah. right? It's like when you grab a new bat and you've never used, you're not going to go up, you know, in an important game with a bat you've never held. Yeah. But when you go up and it's just not something that you have to worry or think about, it just feels natural in your hand. But there's another thought to this. And, 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 you know, Ron, you know, this, you've shot a lot, right? You've shot far more than the average guy like me. I mean, when I was right. doing load development and setting up rifles for all the customers and shooting every single day or and every night. And I mean, just spending hundreds of rounds every day at the range, I might shoot 15 different guns over the course of a day at the range after. Mm -hmm. So to this, I guess, and I guess I bring this up because it doesn't matter what rifle you're shooting. As long as you're shooting your trigger discipline is the same, you mount the rifle the same. And if you get used to adapting to whatever gun you're in, you're going to figure it out. It's you guys. I had a guy ask me the other day. He's like, well, how am I supposed to get to the range and practice a whole bunch right now when I can't even find ammunition in a volume for my 300 win mag. I mean, cause 300 win mag was kind of short at the moment. And I told him, I was like, grab your 22, dude, go plank, yep. target acquisition yep. skills, shoot squirrels, pop cans, yep. do whatever you can practice mounting the rifle, acquiring the target and squeezing the trigger properly over and over and over again. And, but yeah, knowing your weapon, like, like I said, like my 300 PRC, I know where that bullet's going. Yep. When I pull the trigger, things die. And I know the weapon 
but I also shoot a lot more than the average guy. And like Ron does, like you do, you know, we, we shoot a lot of various different guns. We can probably adapt where we want, but for the average guy out there who doesn't get to access it, you know, a, a room full of guns. I mean, Travis, if you went back over to the office right now, there's what, 30 or 40, 50 guns over there. You can pick yep. up any one you want, go over to the ammo shop, grab a box of ammo off the shelf and go shoot it. Yeah. I mean, most people don't have that. Yeah. Luxury. Most people don't have that luxury. Same with Ron. Ron can grab, I'm, I'm going to take a wild guess and say, Ron's probably got a pretty badass gun collection somewhere. And, and he's got a, a lot of selection and variety and, and different things that he has access to. And once again, you could probably pick up one of any of your rifles, Ron, and go shoot it accurately. But once again, the average guy doesn't have access to that. So it's about range time with your guns. You know, if you're yeah. listening to this show and you own two or three rifles, you've got a 6.5 and a 300 and a 338, whatever it is, spend time with those guns. Get to know them, understand their limitations, and be extremely proficient with them and know exactly where your bullet's going to fly when it goes downrange. Um, you know, and, so I, I, I got I a question for both of you guys before we yeah. move on to something else. Um, so I said it earlier, but controlling your emotions is super important, right? So none of this really matters if in the heat of the moment on an animal, you, you can't control your emotions and you're going to miss or wound an animal, right? So my question to both, you know, Ron and Steve is what's the, you know, one thing or one sentence, however you want to spin it. How do you coach yourself in the moment to ensure that your emotions are under control, so you don't make a poor shot at an animal. What what does that sound like in your head before you do it? Uh, Ron, you take that one first. Oh man, that's a tough one. That's a tough one, guys. Because even at my experience level and my age, I could still get too worked up. Even with a camera, I'm a wildlife photographer, and if I get this incredible opportunity at a critter, you know, great big trophy, something or other, and a beautiful light and everything else, I'll start shaking yeah. so much I can't get a decent picture. Yeah, so. What you have to do, obviously, experience helps a whole bunch. You've been there before you've done that. And then beyond that, I think you need to plan ahead by uh, thinking about it and running that scenario through your head. What is it going to be like when I see this big animal? What do I need to do? I can't get all worked up over the size of it and the antlers and whatever else. And then don't look at the antlers and et cetera and all the standard stuff. But it's mind over matter. Or in this case, it's mind over mind. Well, it's <laughs> experience. Yeah, you have got to control yourself. And I remember one time I had a a big, big, beautiful white tail buck standing in front of me, and it was one of these stand up and shoot him deals. Because I am walking along, I come over this little crest, and he's looking right at me. He's going to bolt in at any second, and I throw it up and put the crosshair on his throat patch because that was my only target. And I caught myself just before I flinched and blew the shot, and said to myself, "You stupid fool." Just pretend you're shooting a 22 and squeeze the trigger like it's a squirrel. Yeah. And I made the shot right in the center of that throw patch. But if I had taken the shot on my initial almost flinch attempt, I would have missed him big time because I was so excited and rushed myself. So it's that, that old fast is slow and slow is fast and smooth and whatever that saying is. You've got to work on that. So if I think ahead of time when I'm out practicing and shooting, I'm going to say, that's not just a target I'm shooting at. That's a deer. And it's not a bad idea to get an actual deer target out there, the same as archers do. Get a 3D deer target out there, mm -hmm. pull up on it, and make that smooth shot. And, and practice with your gun in field positions. A lot of guys can't even get their rifle off their shoulder because they've never practiced it. Yeah. They do all their shooting off of a bench, and then they get out hunting, and they go, oh, there's one. And then <laughs> by the time they get their rifle off their shoulder, figure yeah. out if they're going to sit, stand, or go prone, it's too late. Yeah. Or and not they wonder where their that, leg sled is. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, <laughs> you've got to be comfortable with your rifle, how to handle it in the field. That takes a lot of that buck fever away. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the benefits to filming all of our hunts is that we never have a chance for something to happen quickly, right? I yeah. mean, if something's happening quickly, it's happening too quickly. Don't yeah. even get the gun off your shoulder yeah. kind of a situation. And when when something big's like when we got the caribou this year, mm-hmm. I had a lot of time to think about that caribou. Yeah. And the more time you, I was going to add this in my questioning to you guys, but the more time you have to think about it, usually the worse it gets. Not for me. The more time I have, the easier it yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. I, the more time more I have, down. yeah, my brain goes. So I start thinking about other things. I go through all of the different progressions I'm in it, and it goes right down to like, if I'm laying prone, I'm going to shoot, I'll probably say, 75% of the animals I take, I'm shooting prone because I'm shooting two, three, four, five, six, seven hundred yards. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm laying prone, I can usually feel like my heartbeat, right? And, you know, shooting, when I want to be really precise, first off, I, first thought that goes through my mind is aim small, miss small, right? Yep. The old muzzleloader saying. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking for the smallest thing I can behind the animal. And then I'm actually feeling for my heartbeat. I'm trying to shoot between heartbeats. Like I, I try to make myself think about all the other things. And then, of course, in the middle of that, I've got a camera guy going, I'm on him. Yeah. Hurry up and shoot. <laughs> yeah. Are you good? To make things worse. Yeah. And so, you know, we've now, now we've got this other conversation going, but when, when, when I break it down, I've always got myself to think about the other things, like, is my safety proper? Is my, you know, what's my trigger discipline like? Mm-hmm. Am, am I level? You know, if you're shooting five, six hundred yards, you better be damn well be level, mm-hmm. right? Is there any wind? I'm I'm going through all of the other things. Like I've got this checklist I go through so that I don't allow my mind yeah, to go in other places. Yeah. To yeah. go other ways, you know? And you know, the, the other thing, and, and this year I didn't hit my checklist, you know, a lot of people out there, there's a little breaking news for people that, um, you know, legend, right? So I'm hunting legend yeah. at the ranch this last year. And I think I told you about this. Oh, yeah. we're, we're, yep. So a friend of mine was up, he had a cow tag and I had the, the bull tag and um, I, let him use my rifle to take a really long shot at a, at an elk yeah. and he missed it and not a big deal, but I assumed and assume stands for making an ass out of yeah. you and me. Right. I assumed that he turned my turret back to 100 afterward and I shouldered the gun, never thought about it. We went over check, no blood, no nothing. You know, two days later I make a move on you an elk. Get the tur- no, I never even looked at the turret. Oh, I was inside a hundred yards. 150 yards maybe. And I mean, I, I mean, Ron for a little backstory legend, isn't a little bull. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, and, and I actually, this look, I've been around this out for a long time. This is the first time I really took a whack at him. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, or whack at trying to kill him. I have this bull in my scope and I'm like, should I kill him? Should I not kill him? I'm literally debating with myself. Should I fill my elk tech? Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to kill him. That's just too good of a situation. No cameras rolling. It's the first time I've hunted off camera in 22 years. Okay. Hey. First time in 22 years I've hunted off camera. I'm prone. I am rock solid. I flicked the, the safety off like an arrogant little prick. I hit the trigger. <laughs> and that bull walked away. And then he stuck his head back around a tree and stepped into another opening at like 150 yards. My 100-yard oh tur- turret. Nothing. I was like, oh, I guess I missed it. Send it again. Nothing. Tree in the background tipped over the top of it, you know. And after all the elk, I couldn't figure out what was going on. I looked down at my turret and I was set at 1,050 yards. Damn. <laughs> I was like. So your checklist was. My checklist had. I mean, I did everything else but look at my turret. Yeah. 
Everything but looking. Now that comes with letting someone else touch your equipment, mm-hmm. right? My responsibility was to not assume mm-hmm. that somebody else was going to put my equipment back. But, but I mean, I remember thinking this, I was literally, my checklist was complete. I wasn't showing no buck fever, no nothing. I went through my entire progression except look at your turret. It was a train wreck. Oh, I was so mad. So and my, mine real quick is um, to not let any doubt creep in. Cause that's for me personally, yeah. what would create more anxiety, right. And create a, a bigger, make Perfection. a bigger, so, yeah, it's not yeah. as big of a situation as I would make it. So just to make sure that I talk to myself, you got this, you got this. And that. then the last thing is it's just whatever species I'm hunting. It's just a deer or it's just an elk. Yeah. Don't make it bigger than it actually is. Even yeah. though it is in my mind, I won't let it in that situation. Got it. All right. Well, yeah. I tell you what, Ron, hold on one second here. We've hit the uh, time max for this particular segment of the podcast. We've got to hear from our sponsors, and then we come right back. I'm going to find out what we're all going to be doing this fall. I want to know what's on the radar, okay? Uh, this segment of the Steve's Outdoor Adventures podcast is sponsored by Pendleton Ammunition, hand-loaded one round at a time. We'll be right back. This segment of the Steve's Outdoor Adventures podcast is sponsored by Pendleton Ammunition. Hand-loaded, one round at a time. Hey, everybody. We're back here in the studio, and on the phone, we've got Ron Spomer, 45-year veteran of the outdoor industry, and we're talking guns and ammo and hopefully a little bit of big game hunting for it's over with. Ron, when we went to break, we were talking about 6'8 Western and various different calibers, and one that you mentioned and I briefly touched on was a 6'5 Creedmoor. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's a caliber that burst on the scene at like a thousand miles an hour. Um, <laughs> I, I don't even know how to describe it. It went from like nobody talking about a six, five Creed more to all of a sudden everybody in the world had to have one. And mm-hmm. I was getting weird phone calls from guys asking if they could shoot elk at a thousand yards with them. And could I take one on a grizzly bear hunt? And, and I, I, I mean, my head just about exploded uh, over that caliber. <laughs> so uh, tell me what, what, what do you think, Ron, about the six, five Creed more? What's your personal take? Well, you know, the 6.5 Creedmoor has been around since 1892 in the form of the 6.555 suite. Obviously, the cartridges are shaped differently, but they shoot the same bullets to almost the same velocity. So it's it's a proven caliber size. The 2.64, the 6.5 millimeter, has been around the world from so many different companies. you got the Manlicker Schoenauer, the Jap. Uh, there was uh, an Italian Carcano. I mean, the 6.5 has been big in Europe and pretty much everywhere in the world, except for the U.S. You know, we had the 264 wind mag, and that was pretty hot for a while until the 7 rem mag came out and buried it. Um, they tried the 6.5 Remington Magnum. That didn't do very well because they put it in such a silly little rifle carbine. And you, just couldn't, you just couldn't realize what the potential was in that case. The case now on that one's about like the PRC. The PRC yeah. is a better version of the 6.5 rem mag. Yeah. But when the 6.5 Creedmoor came along, why I think it did so darn well is because it was such a mild shooter, relatively inexpensive, long barrel life, and it was designed to shoot really long, high BC bullets for target shooting. Yeah. And the fact that we we had laser range finders, and people discovered, you know what? If I know how far it is to that target, I don't really need to have a super magnum to reach it because I can make compensations for the drop because it's consistent. Yeah. Once I know my trajectory curve, all I have to do is aim X high in, in minutes of angle or mil radians. And at the same time, all the scopes were coming out with turret dialing. 
and or multiple reticles in it, which made it easier for people to get on target. And once you put your, your crosshair on something six to 800 yards away and push the trigger and it goes clang after a half second or so, yeah. <laughs> you go, whoa, this is kind of cool. Yeah, very it's, little recoil, fun to shoot. Yeah, you know? no recoil. Yeah. You can almost see your bullets landing, and then you hear that cool clang out there, and you realize how far away that target was, and you feel like you've really done something. And mm-hmm. it, it was it was just it's like taking drugs, I think. Once you start shooting like that, then you want to see if you can hit 1,000 and then 1,250, and you just keep going. Yeah. And everybody jumps on that bandwagon. And I think a big contributor to it was the fact that you can't go out in the country hunting these days the way you could when I was a kid getting started. It's so hard to get away, to afford it, to find the place, et cetera, et cetera. But by golly, if you can go out and clang steel targets all day, you get to use your rifle. And when yeah. you've got a new rifle, that's what you want to do. You want to shoot at something. Sure. Well, and to that, I guess, degree, you're, you're talking about, so a guy sits down, shoots a target at seven, eight, 900 yards. He gets a sense of, um, you know, like, Hey, I can do this during hunting season. Mm-hmm. They see a deer and elk at, you know, six, seven, 800, 900 yards. They put the crosshairs on it and send it without thinking about that steel target they were shooting at in the fall. Wasn't going to take a step. Right. Um, right. If, if they hit it one foot too far to the left, the steel plate still died. Um, you know, these, and, and I think that I, I think that people have taken the creed more and this is my own personal opinion. They've taken the creed more and said, Hey, here's a really great mule deer and antelope cartridge, uh, whitetail cartridge. And now we're going to try and make it do things that are, you know, that make it, we want this to outperform its size. And, and and so we've got guys pumping these hundred and. Yeah, they're yeah. they're pumping these hundred and forty grain bullets into elk at seven, eight, nine hundred yards, hitting them too far back, um, you know, or hitting them in a leg or whatever. And, and I think that, uh, you know, I try to educate people all the time. Like, look, the six five Creedmoor is a fringe elk caliber. It's a great bullet if you can put it where it needs to be, but your margin for error is very small. Mm-hmm. If you hit an elk in the guts at five hundred yards with a six five Creedmoor your odds of recovering it are much smaller than if you hit him in the guts with a 300 Winchester Magnum and 180 grain bullet, uh, you know, in the same spot. Right. I mean, so your margin fares less. And, and I just don't think that the shooters and hunters out there have really understood that there's a difference between shooting that steel plate and shooting a eight, 900 pound elk. Yeah. And, and a lot of them just didn't have that, uh, that much experience shooting anything. So what yeah. do they know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And you're exactly right. Once they've got the thing clanging steel, they think, well, shoot, I can do this on deer and elk. Yeah. And if they have success with a deer at 600, then they'll try an elk at seven if he shows up and they start to think they're invincible. Yeah. They're sniper. But you're at that point. <laughs> yeah. But you're absolutely right. It's just all that animal has to do is take one step. By the time your brain says push the trigger and you do that, the lock time and the bullet leaving the barrel and getting there and that half second it takes to go that far and even gosh you're up to about a second in a thousand yards um, that's plenty of time for that deer elk to take a step and then your heart shot turns into a gut shot well it's Corey and then there's the get to it too you know yeah because Coriolis of the earth and did it rotate another foot you know in that period of time while the bullet was in travel and now all of a sudden he's shot in the back and butt cheek right so mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's this long range shooting is awesome. It's fun. I encourage everybody to get out and do it, but I also want them to 
learn, practice, and dedicate themselves to it because, you know, once again, wind drift. I mean, all of these factors that come into play, it's it's our job as hunters, our responsibility as hunters to know our weapon and know our limitations and know exactly where that bullet is going to hit when we punch the trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and I think there's a lot of people out there that have lost that respect for the animals or respect yeah. for um, going to the range or that dedication to going to the range, perfecting themselves at the range. And I know, and I would go ahead. I would even, I would even call it re- respect for themselves yeah. and for our hunt, our hunting heritage. It's not something that's easy to articulate. You don't hear about it that much, but we have a significant heritage as hunters that we need to protect. And it's too easy with technology to just be frivolous about it all and spend more time thinking about the technology and perfecting it and using it. And yeah, you can use it effectively. But what does that say about us as hunters in our community? You know, the whole idea of going from market hunting and wasting the resources to what we called sport hunting back in the turn of the late 19th century, you know, that was a big deal. People snub sport hunting and say it's not a sport. You're not playing with these animals. This is serious stuff. That's not what sport hunting meant. Sport hunting meant we're not market hunters. We're not poachers. We have to differentiate ourselves. So we're going to set rules and boundaries the way they do in sport. You're out of bounds. You can't take advantage of the animal by shooting them in the headlights. You can't fly through the air and blast him out of an airplane. All the different rules that we established for to distinguish sport hunting from just killing stuff and yeah. selling the meat and whatever we were doing with it. That's the, what we're, we have to respect and appreciate and maintain as hunters. So yeah, high technology is always going to make it easier and easier and easier to get our game at crazier distances. But at what point do we divorce ourselves from our hunting roots and the challenges that nature gives us? And ultimately, the reason that we're out there in the first place is not to shoot animated targets. We're out there to rediscover ourselves as natural parts of the environment we're integral with nature the same as a wolf and a coyote and a cougar they're out there hunting doing their thing as nature intended we can do the same the only real difference is that we're tool makers they're not they depend on what evolution has given them with speed and claws and scent and group working as a group as a wolf with humans yeah we can work as a group but we can also use our brain to build a tool and use that tool to take the animal yeah. But now with the advances that we have, it's just too easy to make tools that could, yeah, I mean, we're to the point where we can stay home on the computer with a joystick and probably shoot something. Well, they made that out but legal, that, but thank yeah. God. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, but no one thing I wanted to bring up, um, Ron, is that, you know, for me, you know, I'm not necessarily a gun or a ballistics expert. I, I'm, I'm going to stay in my lane and, and think of this at a higher you know, from a higher viewer perspective around hunting and ethics. Um, and Steve, you talked about margin of error being small. And and so just as important as caliber or bullet or even more so, and I know you've written, you know, several articles about this wrong because I've read them is, you know, a ma- um, managing your emotions. Um, you know, you wrote an article about best rests in the field, you know, the top five, five shooting mistakes in the field, you know, bad positioning, rushing shots, trigger contact, you know, and just really don't allow, you know, allowing buck fever to get in the way of making an ethical shot. And I think if that becomes just as important as ballistics and, and, uh, and shooting and practice, then we're going to make more ethical shots. And it wouldn't be so much about the caliber. It's 
you know, making an ethical shot. So, well, let, let me yeah. take this one step further. You know, I, I talked to a guy, oh, probably it's been a long time. I think the last time I went to shot show, I ran into you, Ron, you and your wife were upstairs in the media room. And, um, mm-hmm. but I, at that same shot show, I brought this up to another guy in the industry and I said, look, we have an obligation to protect this privilege that we have to be gun owners and hunters and, and stuff. And, and he corrected me and he said, no, it's our right. It's our God given right. It's our con- constitutional right to own these guns. And, and, you know, and I think that we need to check ourselves up as gun owners and hunters and start viewing this because uh, differently, because honestly, we're literally one change in legislature away from eroding rights, whether it be hunters rights or gun ownership rights. Um, you know, th- I, I fear that there's some changes on the horizon that none of us are going to like. And granted, it might be 20, 30, 50, 80 years from now. But I think that if we start looking at the gun ownership and, and I, I tie gun ownership and hunting rights together hand in hand, mm-hmm. I'll probably more than anything else. But I think if we start viewing these things as privileges that we have to protect rather than arrogantly looking at them as this is our right, no one's going to take it from us. I think the sooner we start doing that, that the animals are going to fare better because when you punch the trigger, you you should know exactly where that yeah. bolt's going to go. You need to have an ethical kill. If there were a lot fewer wounded and lost animals out there, um, you know, I even, take it to archery even. I mean, how, how often do we read about animals that wander into Salt Lake off the front range with an arrow in them, you yeah. know? And, um, you know, it, it, I mean, it happens, but ethical shot placement, whether with bullet or arrow, um, you know, better gun ownership behavior, more responsible gun ownership behavior, storing your rifles properly, keeping them out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them, um, you know, working as a gun ownership and hunting communities and working together rather than against each other. I think that that is really important. I, I, I'm a firm believer. I mean, it was, I guess it's been about eight or nine years ago that Willie Robertson, when Buck Commander was going Buck Wild at the time with Duck Dynasty, he and I were both sponsored by Stack On. And when you walked into Shot Show, there's a great big banner up there that said, Take the Pledge, right? Stack On Gun Safes. Uh, that taking the pledge meant to be a responsible gun owner. Mm-hmm. And I was begging them to take one step forward and be, be a responsible gun owner and sportsman, yeah. you know, with, with shot placement yeah. and, and practice and treating the animals and the guns and everything, just being more responsible with everything in our world, you mm-hmm. know? I don't know. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on with that. I would make some clarification on rights and privileges. We definitely have the right under our Constitution to keep and bear arms. That is a right, but that doesn't mean it can't be taken away from us, as you said. Yeah, like the rights and the privilege. Acting, yes, yeah. and having having this arrogant stance of, well, too bad it's my right, I'll do whatever I want. Yeah, until they take it away from you. And if you you tick them off and you act like a jerk or something and you don't you're you're not responsible in in your right, you're gonna find out that it was not that much of a right after all, because yes, they can take it away. And obviously hunting can be taken away a lot easier because they're not that is not protected in the constitution. There's yeah. nothing about your right to hunt. I think we have a God-given right to hunt because we are nature's creatures the same as anything else. We didn't drop out of the sky from <laughs> Mars or Venus. Uh, we are an integral part of nature. We're as much uh, predators who have a right to take prey animals as any other natural predator. We're the only one that actually has a conscience and understands ramifications of our actions. Yeah, And that's why we're conservation hunters instead of meat hunters. Yes, we eat the meat. Don't get me wrong there. 
I don't throw uh, waste my meat. I'm not hunting just so I can kill things and say, whoopee-dee, I killed something. That's disgusting, and I don't do that, and most hunters don't. Yeah. Sure, there's a few crazies out there, that then there's crazies who do all sorts of bad things. Yeah. But the hunter treats his game with respect, himself with respect. He sets rules and regulations. He says, I'm not going to shoot out of a helicopter. I'm not going to take a 1,000-yard shot, even though that I've got the bullet and the scope that can do it. Just because I respect myself and my prey, and I know it makes more sense to get closer and make sure of my shot. And just all of the things that are involved with being a responsible hunter. You set up the challenge, and then you meet it. Yeah. Or you fail because you weren't up to the task, but you don't cheat to get there. Amen. Yep. I'll tell you what. You say God-given right, though, and the reality is that we might have a God-given right to be hunters, gatherers, collectors, whatever, but we, we live in a society where yep. Congress can take away that God-given right, and that's why we have to yep. be careful about who we elect and what positions. And Absolutely. we need to always be working toward improving our public image so that the people who don't live in our communities don't get a bad you know, sense of who the real yes. outdoor community are. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to place yep. amongst our own. Hey, we've got to take another break here, here from one of our sponsors. Once again, this segment of the Steve's Outdoor Adventures podcast was sponsored by Burris Optics and the new Burris Eliminator 5 Laser Scope. This segment of the Steve's Outdoor Adventures podcast is sponsored by Bergara Rifles, where the people truly make the difference. All right, we're back here in the podcast studio. And we're about to wrap things up. It's we been are. a phenomenal recording. I mean, I've learned a lot. Oh today. yeah, me too. And Bullets and guns. And yeah. What would you do? And totally. You know, I mean, look. Anytime you can get Ron Spomer on the podcast and he wants to talk about guns and ammunition, you're going to learn a lot about ballistics and calibers. And yeah. and you know, and and that you know takes me you know to what are you going to hunt this year, Ron? Like, what's on your schedule, your radar? Like, what are your plans for this this year? I'm going to tackle COVID first. And once I wipe that out, then it's no holds barred. <laughs> I've gotcha. got some backup. Yeah. I, we're putting together a buffalo hunt in Africa, Mozambique, Cape Buffalo with uh, Zambezi Delta Safaris. We're going to go in the last 10 days in September. And, uh, you know, they've got, uh, you guys ever been over there? Oh, yeah. Quite a bit. Have you hunted that? Zambezi Delta. So no, I did not go to Mo. I shouldn't. I've been all over Africa, but I did not go to Mozambique for more than an hour. All right. Yeah. All right. Now the Delta well, is like a lot of water, as I recall. Well, it used to be a lot of water. They've since they put dams on the Zambezi River. They control it now, so it's not as flooded as often as it used to be. Whatever, but still, you go from grassland to wetland to swamps to river channels, and it's just outstanding habitat for buffalo elephant they've reintroduced lion the thing was after the civil war in mozambique in the 90s there were 2,000 buffalo left in that whole area in where i'm hunting with zambezi delta they've got close to 25,000 now nice yeah nice yeah and it's and it's a incredible hunting conservation story because they did this all as hunters they used hunters monies funding it yeah it's just a sustainable use program they're Sable population is through the roof, the eland, the kudu, the niala, you name it. They have brought back every species that was native to the area, including cheetah and lion. Wow. So it's 
it's just an incredibly feckin' place to hunt. It's wildlife everywhere. It's the Africa of the good old days, I'd say maybe 80 years ago, like it used to be in Kenya before the the band took over and they started poaching everything out. So it's a special place. And I don't generally go out of country during our fall seasons, but he had some openings and uh, late September is a really good time for some big stuff over there. The eland start to come out of the forest and move out into the grasslands more and whatnot. Also, we're going to go over there and have a high old time. Nice. And then after that, I really don't have a lot of things over here. I got some couple of pronghorn hunts and I'm going to be doing a lot more bird hunts. I'm doing a lot more bird hunting these days because I got a new dog, <laughs> English huh. setter. And I just feel guilty if I'm out elk hunting and she's home for a week without having any fun. So nice, nice. Well, you know, Africa, you know, I tried to get the bug to bite me. I tried. Um, back in the early to mid 2000s, I think the last time I went to Africa was 2008 or 2009. I mean, I did Tanzania. Um, I went to, uh, well, I used to call it, for whatever reason, I grew up calling it Rhodesia, but, you know, Zimbabwe. Yeah. Um, yep. I imagine the hunting in Rhodesia when it was Rhodesia was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, I, I didn't, I went to Namibia, spent some time in Namibia, especially in the free range stuff, um, up by like a Tosha. Um, but I was never really, I, I did that like this, the African bug, even with the Buffalo and the lion and the elephants, it never really bit like for me, it, it just never did take hold. I, I, I mean, South Africa didn't do it for me, you know, Southern Namibia and the high fence areas didn't do it for me. Um, but the you know, not like North America did for me. Yeah. I'm in the same boat. I went to Namibia with my dad a few years back, but, um, I prefer North America. Yeah. But all of that said, there is something we said for going someplace that like this, like in the Delta, the Mozambique, there's not a lot of people who've had the pleasure of going there and it's a conservation success story and it's going to be more of a traditional safari. I mean, Ron, you're going to get a chance to go experience safari hunting the way, in my opinion, the way it should be done, not in a, like a high fence, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I'm, oh, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, you're going to see Africa the way that you should see Africa, which is wild and free and wide open, you know, wide open. All yeah, and, and there's not much of it left. You know, we have this idea that it's this wild jungle and Tarzan and everything, <laughs> and no, there, there are people and farms and it's settled everywhere, and mm-hmm. if it's not settled, there are at least villagers in there poaching everything that moves. Yeah. If you don't have a conservation hunting area, you don't have any wildlife left over I, there. I didn't realize they were going to let you take your 284 Winchester after Cape <laughs> Buffalo, though. Well, you're not supposed <laughs> to tell anybody. <laughs> but Africa is not just about the hunting, right? You've got no. this cultural experience. You've got some really cool oh, yeah. travel the food just you bet. yeah thinking back on it it's 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 not even the biggest part for me yeah yeah and then so for, if you're doing pronghorn you've probably got like a wyoming tag and a montana tag like most of us and every year and yeah, yeah. i'll be doing wyoming and colorado oh and colorado and excellent yeah 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 and who knows what i'll draw here in idaho you know we can always hunt deer and elk around here but I might pull a special tag when trying to get a a moose tag. I've gotten two sheep tags already, but I've been trying to get that Shiras moose. So nice. Maybe I'll get lucky. Hey, nice. your time's got to come up sometime. I mean, that's that's a great thing about the draw. It's like the lottery. You can't win if you don't play. There you go. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you know, for us on our end, I mean, we're we sit around waiting for the draws a little bit. Yeah. How many points do you have for elk now? Do you only have one point then In, last year for Wyoming? For Wyoming? Yeah. Uh, two now. Two now. Yeah. Okay. So you're another Ooh. year out, probably. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we just. 
like we're literally sitting around trying to put it together. I know that, you know, I think I mentioned earlier, I applied for the drawn Kodiak. I'm going to find out in February if I drew that one. Yep. I really want to hunt for another big bear. Um, I, I thought I wasn't as mad at the big bears as I used to be. And I thought, well, you know, I've shot a lot of bears. Maybe I won't shoot anymore. And then I came to my senses and applied for the tag. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but if, if this year goes down the way I really want it to, I'd love to get like, um, maybe like a, a, a BCL cunt, you know, I was talking about going up, you know, North Cranbrook, yep. you know, into the Purcell uh, area. I'd love to do an elk hunt up there in September. I'd like to maybe do a, you know, I want to do that doll sheet or that stone sheep hunt in yep. August. Um, matter of fact, I was talking to Bob about that again yep. yesterday. And you've um, been trying to put that together for a while. Well, every time I book it for myself, either COVID hits or some other client needs a tag worse than me. And, yep. you know, we always take care of our clients first, but, uh, you know, but then just a couple of elk hunts. If I could get a, a big brown bear and a, and a, and a uh, stone sheep this year. I mean, that wouldn't suck. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. you know, and if we get a couple of elk hunts together, for you, uh, we really want to do some mountain lions. Can you make it snow for us, Ron? Because we've been like trying to get out on like a right damn now, lion hunt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I should have been here two weeks ago. We were covered up. Yeah, yeah, same here. I mean, and the problem was two weeks ago, we were sending our clients out left and right, and they were laying the cats down. And then, uh, oh, our, believe it. Yeah, yeah, and our area in Wyoming kind of, hit a quota and next thing you know, it's all gone sideways and yep. none of us are out hunting lions. So we're, we're open for one more good winter shot here in February or March and we can get out and yeah. film a couple of lion hunts. So. And, and for me, obviously, obviously always trying to find new operations that are world-class for our clients um, and, or ones that I haven't visited so that I'm better prepared to yeah present and, and connect. So without a doubt, well, it, you know, other than hunts, I mean, Ron, as a writer and outdoor guy, you know, what new product line are you looking forward to most this year? Like in 2022, what's coming out that you want to, that, that you want to get your hands on? Absolutely nothing guys. I know. Really? Shocked are you maxed out? You. out? Are you maxed out? Like I'm, you've uh, seen it all. You've, you've I maxed. am maxed out. Cool. No, it's funny. I've been at this game for so long and I've tried so many things that I am just realizing that I have got some pet rifles and pet scopes and binoculars and I've, you know, I've got it all. I just need to use it more without having to switch up all the time. Yeah. It's, this is going to sound really stupid, but I mean, I end up shooting somebody else's rifle about every time I go on a hunt <laughs> and I've got these rifles that I kind of bought years ago for being my pet rifle that I was going to use a lot. And I'm realizing they're just sitting there collecting dust. So I really am not excited about any new developments. I just want to get familiar with the old stuff and yeah. use it and start to really appreciate yeah, you know, enjoying my time of field. When you get a little bit older, you really start to go back to your your roots when you were a kid. And you were all excited about the new discoveries and out in nature and everything. You, and you get back to that. At least I do. You know, I'm in my 60s and I'm starting to really appreciate the smell of the, the autumn woods and the leaves and taking my time and, and just sucking the marrow out of those hunts. Ten years ago, you know, it was like, go, 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 get another one, try the new this, try the new that. And I've done it for so long and so often that I'm just slowing down and starting to smell the roses. Yeah. Good for you. You know, it, it's almost the same way I feel about having camera guys with me in the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, uh, <laughs> I was, I mean, honestly, this last year when I took those little walks, you know, on the ranch and I was out there with no camera operators and no pressure or I mean, I'd go out and I'd find elk and I'd sit down and glass them and enjoy, just enjoy the yep. day. And, 
And uh, I come back to the office and do a little work, go back out for an evening hunt. No camera guys, like throwing a camera in face. So how do you feel tonight? What are you using? What, you know, what, what type of boot shine did you use today to waterproof your, you know, shoelaces? And, and, uh, so, so did you still give audio in the field by yourself? Yeah. I narrate to myself, <laughs> you know, I, I did that one, like, like that one day for Instagram out there with the phone, you know, where I was just like, well, I'm out here with no camera guys. And people were like, what, like, how could you be out there with that? How are you going to share this with us? Well, I'm not. Yeah, this one's for me, yep. you know, and, and so I, you know, I think it's on the same level with you, you know, thinking about using some of your, your old gear, something, you know, like I said, you're not hunting with somebody else's stuff. You get to use your own stuff and get familiar with it again and, and count a little bit of coup, put some meat in the freezer and enjoy yourself. Well, there you go. Amen. That's it. Well, Ron, let me ask you this. Where can our listeners find your blog and other information? I mean, how how the people who are listening to this show that aren't already know about you that are learning about you here right now today? How are they going to find you and your videos and all of your information? What's the best way for them to find you? Oh, that's easy. Just type in Ron Spomer Outdoors. The website is ronspomeroutdoors.com and it's S P O M E R, just like Homer and Gomer. And uh, on YouTube, it's Ron Spomer Outdoors. There as well, we've got. Uh, some extended TV stuff on rsotv.com. Go to the website and then you can see all the rest of the options for clicking to get in. And then, of course, you can find me in American Hunter Magazine, Sports of Field, Sporting Classics Magazine, a uh, few others now and then. Doing a, a lot less magazine work these these days because of the the YouTube stuff and the TV video channels and such. But yeah, just look for Ron Spomer and you'll probably scrounge me up someplace. Perfect. And some of those articles I read, I believe it was on Outdoor Life were just awesome. You know, things I mentioned during this podcast. So I encourage any of our listeners to to take a look at those articles as well. Yeah. Google Ron Spomer, look at, you know, Ron Spomer Outdoors uh, on YouTube and on the website. And and Ron, I want to thank you for coming on the show today and, and for, you know, I guess educating the people that are listening and and not just what, what little we talked about today is just a pinhead of what you're going to find in a lot of Ron's writings mm-hmm. and videos and whatnot that you, you can access out there. And, and, uh, we encourage everyone to go, like I said, Google it up, check it out and, you know, and just learn as much as you possibly can about all of the things that not just us, but like Ron or, you know, and, and the other people that are experts, guys like Ron spent 45 years or more in this industry they've learned a lot. Ron's probably forgot more than I'm going to know and about rifles and ballistics. And and I encourage everybody just get out there, soak it up, watch the videos, read the articles and become a better, more efficient and ethical hunter. Unfortunately, that's all the time we've got for this week's podcast. Uh, We had a great time here today, Ron. Thanks again for having, you know, joining us here. My my pleasure, Steve. Thanks for having me, Steve and Travis. It's great talking to you guys. Anytime, anytime. Well, hey, I'm going to email you a little later and get your address, Ron. I'm going to send you a little care package with some of these uh, bullets and some of this ammunition that we talked about earlier. I want you to shoot it and give me your professional opinion. Oh, that that sounds great. I'll be happy to do that. Thanks so much, Steve. Anytime, buddy. You have a wonderful day, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, once again, folks, that's all the time we have for this particular podcast. We appreciate you joining us and listening in. And, you know, join us when we get this next podcast up. We're going to be recording vigorously now for the next couple of months. We've got a lot of great guests coming up. Ted Nugent agreed to come on the show. I can hardly wait to do Ted's show. Uh, We're going to have um, Steve Chappell. Yeah, Elk Camp TV and one of the greatest outfitters in Arizona. And Caller. 
Oh, great elk caller, but just an Arizona trophy bulls outfitter. Guru. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's badass. Got a lot of great guests coming up over the next few podcasts, and and we want you all to listen in and enjoy every one of them. Leave us comments, ask us questions, and we'll try to get those answered for you. Until next time, everybody get in the woods and get outside. The Steve's Outdoor Adventures podcast is sponsored by Farwide, the game-changing free app that puts outdoor intelligence in the palm of your hand.